And uh, before we begin, I just want to ask um, you to silence any buzzing or beeping or notifications that might be coming out of your phone or your computer, because I'm sure you're a very popular person and everybody's trying to get a slice of your time. Well, although if you heard my notification, it would just be amusing because you'd hear my phone say Kirk to Enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Actually, maybe you should keep that on right now. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wall. First of all, I want to give a big thank you to everyone who joined me and my colleagues at the Carnegie Earth and Planets Laboratory's Neighborhood Lecture on the Science of Star Trek. If you missed the live broadcast of this virtual event, not to worry, the recording is up on YouTube. Just follow the link in the show notes. Now, if you've been diligently listening along to this podcast, you know that I ran a mini-series called Europa Watch during the course of Season 2 of Star Trek Picard. The premise was this. Every time we got a glimpse of anything related to the Europa mission, I would record an impromptu episode about that mysterious moon of Jupiter, sometimes with a little help from my friends and colleagues. Although I encourage you to listen to the rest of the Europa Watch miniseries if you haven't done so already, it is not at all a requirement for enjoying this special episode of Strange New Worlds, which completely stands alone. Today is the epic finale of the Europa Watch miniseries, in the form of a full-length episode featuring Dr. Bob Papalardo. There is no guest more perfect for this occasion than Dr. Papalardo, who works at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, and serves as project scientist of NASA's Europa Clipper mission, a robotic mission currently scheduled for launch in 2024. As project scientist, Bob is basically the chief science officer of the Europa Clipper team. He's the lead scientist responsible for overseeing the scientific objectives and scientific quality of the mission. I've wanted to have Bob on Strange New Worlds for years, and I'm glad that Season 2 of Star Trek Picard gave us the perfect reason to make it so. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Bob Papalardo to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, you made a very big impression on me when I was a graduate student at Caltech. I remember having the great fortune of being able to visit you at your office at JPL, where I was stunned to find one of the most impressive collections of Star Trek figurines and starships and other memorabilia that I have ever seen in my life. You know, it wasn't at a convention. It wasn't at a museum. It was at a JPL scientist's office. <laughs> it was so amazing. Could you tell me a little bit about this uh, Star Trek shrine that you have in your office? <laughs> I'm, I'm honored that you'd say that because, you know, I, it's not like I've gone out of my way and, and it's not that even a, a, that's all my collection at all. <laughs> uh, I've just brought to my office some of my favorite toys and things and, and many of them are Star Trek. And then some others have given me gifts. So, you know, the Tribble got added that way, or I think there are three. Um, <laughs> and the, uh, the Gorn bobblehead, I think, got added that way. I don't know where I got him. And um, and one of the little, uh, and the Enterprise C as well was a, was a gift. So my interest in Star Trek goes way back. I, I was thinking recently, did, did I actually have the chance, or I was born in 64, so did I ever have the chance to actually watch the first runs of Star Trek? I, I don't remember for sure. But the, the original series is just with me. Like, of course I know Tribbles and of, of, of course I know the Andorians and, and it, mm -hmm. it's just in the Gorn. It's just always been uh, part of what was around me since the time I grew up. So in my office, of course, I'm going to have, you know, a phaser nearby or my, <laughs> my communicator. In fact, um, 
for much of the, uh, as we were talking about before the podcast, for much of the pandemic, I spent time at our second home in Vermont. And I thought, how can I leave here and leave the office for the pandemic and know that I might even be going out of state? What what should I take with me? There isn't much I could take along, but I did grab the communicator. I thought that would be pretty important. <laughs> Just in case you needed to call yeah. JPL yes. in a pinch. <laughs> so do you think that um, Star Trek has played a role in propelling you and your career specifically as a planetary scientist? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, Star Trek portrays, you know, again, more so in the original series and, and more so in some of the sub-series like, like Strange New Worlds, uh, a really idealistic view of the future, one in which exploration and discovery and equity are really key. And so I do think that Star Trek and this vision of the future and for for scientific exploration to be a driver of society was a lot behind my um, drive to be involved in astronomy and ultimately planetary science and uh, help pave the way for for where I am today. Yeah, I feel the same in my life as well. I grew up in the 90s, so I was surrounded by, you know, TNG and Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and those shows really inspired me, and I really think set me on the track to uh, becoming the scientist that I am today. Um, so we've already name-dropped so many Star Trek shows, um, but today we're going to be using the latest season of Star Trek Picard as our launching point. So for listeners who might not be aware, season two of Picard takes place in Los Angeles in 2024, not too far in space and time from where you work over at uh, JPL in Pasadena, California. In this season of Star Trek Picard, our heroes from the future basically come back through time to ensure that a crewed mission to Europa, called very creatively the Europa mission, launches as planned. Um, so before we get into Europa and the Europa mission and the real-life Europa mission that you're working on, Bob, what are your overall impressions of Star Trek Picard as a TV series? Well, okay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. I, you know, I was a, I was a reasonable fan of Next Generation. I thought the ship looked a little too much like some big duck when seen in some. Oh my gosh, that's exactly but... what my brother says. <laughs> really? It's like a duck. Yeah, you're the second person, <laughs> only the second person who's ever equated the Enterprise D to a duck. Especially, you know, when it separates and, and the body is like a chicken with it with its head missing or something, and. <laughs> We, I was just uh, showing my wife the Borg two-parter episode, which I couldn't believe she had never seen. So um, where, where were we? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I was asking about Star Trek well, Picard. A, right, so I'm a fan of Picard, right? He's he's a great captain. You know, the, the series dragged somewhat, but okay. And and um, But overall, it was it was fun, and it captured the spirit of Star Trek really well and, and took it to a next place. Uh, even though sometimes a little clumsily. And I watched one or two, maybe two and a half episodes of the first season of Picard, and I'm like, no, 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 this is not doing it for me. So it seemed nice from the reminiscing standpoint. I don't know, maybe others would, would say the same about Star Trek, the motion picture, which I loved, and it was nostalgia for the, for the original Trek. And I remember lining up for hours for the premiere of, of Star Trek, the motion picture, and seeing it two or three times. Whereas others are like, oh my God, that's a boring thing. So, so there's got to be a little bit of a, of a nostalgia aspect, and and there was, and and then on Twitter I saw someone post a picture of an older Q wearing the the Europa mission patch. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, all right, this is this is essentially a necessity for my job. I have to watch this season two. <laughs> of Picard to understand what's going on. And the first few episodes, you know, it was kind of fun and it was really spectacular to see Guinan again and, and yeah. to see uh, an older Q. And, but then when they came to uh, Earth, sorry, I forgot my, my clock is gonna chime every 15 minutes. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, when they came to Earth, it seemed like, oh goodness, are they just saving money on sets here? Because it really dragged on. And 
I didn't have a lot of love for a lot of the characters. And, you know, I felt like I was kind of looking at, at my watch and biding time as, as the episodes went by before we finally got to the punchline of what the Europa mission was about. But, but again, it was, it was kind of subsidiary, right? It didn't, didn't matter that it was Europa. They even got the story a bit wrong as you were talking with, with James Keen about a few, a few weeks ago that, that, oh, there's life found on IO instead of Europa. And I was just wincing because, <laughs> it, and that, and that there's a crude mission to Europa in 2024, which of course is well beyond us. So did the script writers get the idea that there was a Europa mission that was going to launch in 2024 and I don't know, try to pull um, a little bit of reality into it. So, you know, I was largely disappointed with the series, but there were moments that were a lot of fun nonetheless. So when I emailed you to ask if you would be on this show, you sent one response back with a photo of yourself with the actor Santiago Cabrera, who plays uh, Captain Cristobal Rios. I presume that photo was at JPL. Um, could you tell me the story behind that? Sure. This this harkens back to other um, recent, I guess you call it science fiction. That is the series Salvation, which was on CBS a couple of years ago. Oh. Uh, remember that one? And uh, Santiago Cabrera had a key role in that series. And so how did that lead me to being able to give him a tour of JPL? Well, the showrunners for Salvation, it happened, they're, they're a couple, they're a married couple. And a uh, woman of the couple, Liz Kruger, I went to elementary school and junior high with her. And wow. so when she was working the original script to, to try to sell Salvation, she got in touch and wanted to talk to me about the scientific reality of uh, an asteroid potentially being headed toward Earth, which is the basis mm. of, the, of that show. And so, you know, I just helped with some comments and uh, suggestions on the script and kept in touch with her over this. It was, it was a lot of fun because I hadn't seen her since about seventh grade. And then at, oh, at some point, that's right. At some point she actually invited me over to, to be around the writer's table, which was a blast. And then sometime later got in touch and said, oh, you know, uh, Santiago would, is really interested in this stuff. Uh, might you be able to show him a little bit of JPL? So, so that was a blast to be able to tour him around there didn't know what was in his future that he would end up a captain on Star Trek Picard. Okay. So that photo had nothing to do with Star Trek Picard at all. I thought maybe <laughs> well, that, this was from before. Right. It was from just before. And then, and then I look, you know, and, and see a little bit of the first season of Picard and like, Oh, look who's there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That was fun. So if you had the opportunity to advise scientifically Star Trek Picard, especially season two with this Europa mission, the way that you had the opportunity to advise on this other show, Salvation, uh, what do you think you would have said? Would you have made any alterations to the plot? I mean, it sounds like, first of all, you would have had them find life on Europa rather than Io. Um, what else? Yeah, of, well, I'd say spend some more time in space and less time in the backlots <laughs> of the studios in LA or Toronto or wherever they were. Oh, boy, uh, I, I'm not sure where to start, you know. Um, it was interesting to see the backstory of, of Picard, right? Mm -hmm. um, I guess I would have liked to hear a little more about the science behind the mission, why we were going to Europa, right? So might advise in, in that regard. And I sure would have said that anyone who is part of a crew exploring outer space is trained for years, right? If, if not in some cases, decades, to weed out people who would not have the personality to do such a mission. So I was really disappointed with the character of Rene Picard that I would expect anyone any woman in this case who is uh, an astronaut aboard a crewed mission to not that they might not have private doubts, but as portrayed in this show, 
she was really not the strong personality I would expect for someone who's been trained to go on a, on a multi-year mission to deep space. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't picked up on that too much. Uh, maybe just because I don't know too many astronauts in person <laughs> and get to know their very strong-willed, confident personalities. But maybe it also this speaks to the tampering that Q was doing. Um, I guess, yeah, as her um, as her psychologist, psychiatrist, um, you know, feeding those doubts into her on a daily basis. Um, That's a good point. Q's a trickster. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. I mean, for, for all of these, you know, misgivings with the exact details of the Europa mission, the fact that we really didn't get to see very much of it, just its launch, and then a very brief glimpse of Europa hanging in space. I find it incredible that we get a Star Trek TV series that does include Europa to any extent in a prominent way, because, you know, this class of world couldn't even have been dreamt of in the 1960s, right? There was no way that Kirk and crew would have ever had a story where they visited an icy ocean world because those didn't exist in the minds of scientists, much less science fiction writers back then. So um, now that we're seeing Europa and Picard and also a glimpse of it in Strange New Worlds, I think uh, this sort of speaks to the positive feedback loop between the scientific discoveries that we make as planetary scientists and the science fiction stories that are able to be told as a result. Um, do you have any thoughts on that kind of feedback loop? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, that's a very good point. You're right. It's Star Trek is creating the generation that goes and explores these these icy worlds that then start to show up in the, the new Star Treks. Uh, so, you know, back in the day when Voyager came out, I was an avid fan, but then trying to figure out why, why did I just not see the last few seasons? I think maybe that's when my postdoc started or something, but I just caught the episode where, where the ship crashes into, uh, I don't know if it's a whole ice world, but certainly gets trapped in ice. And, and, yeah. and that was a, a fascinating, really great episode. And, mm -hmm. and then I was really excited to see in, uh, strange new worlds recently it sure looked like when the rangovian spacecraft uh was leaving presumably that was jupiter there and the, and the uh the base there it looked like they were flying past europa as they unfurled yeah. united federation of planets banner yeah yeah that that was such a beautiful scene and the the voyager episode that you mentioned i believe it's timeless where they have to you know go tr try to do some time shenanigans again to get uh, voyager out of the deep freeze is just one of my favorite voyager episodes or episodes of star trek of all time yeah it was it was very well written so bob you're the project scientist for the real life mission to Europa. Um, this is called the Europa Clipper mission, which NASA plans to launch in the year 2024. This mission's name is slightly more creative than Star Trek's The Europa Mission. Could you tell us why it's called the Clipper? Uh, sure. When we were uh, developing the mission concept and had a science definition team, there was no formal name, but we wanted to be able to refer to it as something. And it was for a while just the Europa multiple flyby mission. Well, that's not, you know, that, that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. And part of the discussion was that we were working hard to make it smaller than a typical flagship and less expensive. And so one of the science definition team members, who in fact is now one of our instrument principal investigators for the radar instrument, Don Blankenship, suggested that we call it Clipper via a text to me. Smaller than a flagship, nimble, fast, and American-made, <laughs> he wrote this <laughs> text. And, and, um, and so I thought that was a great idea and it kind of caught on. I suggested it to, passed on that suggestion to a couple of folks at JPL and I said, yeah, we like it. And NASA was hesitant to apply a name at first. Uh, some of your listeners might be interested in the book called The Mission, which is about the birth of the Europa Clipper mission by author David Brown. And uh, he even mentions in there the, the story that, that our program executive at NASA headquarters would try to slip into various documents the name Europa Clipper so that when those were signed, <laughs> they were kind of accidentally 
assigning the name as well. But no, they kept catching on to that uh -huh. uh, until uh, at, at some point it was adopted. I don't remember what the key event was, but it was after our phase A approval and maybe all the way into phase B that that we were nameless. And then finally NASA was, a, was able to adopt it uh, as Europa Clipper. Interesting. Yeah, this is so fascinating how uh, missions get named. I always assumed that the Clipper name had something to do with the way the spacecraft was orbiting Jupiter or something like that. But I guess it's just that it somebody wanted it to be a small ship, smaller than a flagship. <laughs> but, but it works, right? It works yeah. in that, yeah, in that we are also kind of clipping Europa and and zooming back uh, out. So for those who aren't aware, we're we'll be orbiting Jupiter itself and then making many close flybys of Europa. Our trajectory uh, at present has 49 flybys of Europa planned at altitudes from typically uh, 50 or 100 kilometers, but going as low as 25 kilometers. Is that orbit merely because orbiting Europa would be too dangerous for the spacecraft? Europa is immersed in Jupiter's radiation environment being close to Jupiter. So, so Jupiter acts like a giant particle accelerator, right? So, so Io spews out dust and, and particles get dissociated and those particles are now ions and, and get caught up in Jupiter's magnetic field and accelerated. So they like the rotation rate of, of Jupiter and its magnetosphere is about 10 hours. So these particles are, are whipping around Jupiter every 10 hours. So a spacecraft in the vicinity of Europa or, or Io is getting blasted by these high energy charged particles. So we'd rather not be in that environment. What you'd have to do if you're orbiting Europa, as was originally the concept for the Europa mission, you'd need very radiation hardened parts that would be able to withstand mega rad radiation levels uh, over their lifetime. In, in the, if, if an astronaut were on Europa, well, you know, besides freezing to death, you'd get blasted by radiation and it would kill a person in, I think I calculated something like eight minutes to eight hours, uh, hmm. depending on where you were on the surface of Europa. So the radiation's blast, blasting your spacecraft as well. So if we're in orbit around Jupiter, and plan the trajectory so we fly by close to Europa, then you're, you're kind of dipping your toe in, in the waters and, and running away from the waves as, as a beach analogy. Um, <laughs> and, and using that time away from Europa to transmit data back. And so the cumulative amount of radiation is not nearly so much over the lifetime of the mission. So that means that the spacecraft can be made of more common parts, more common electronic components, and therefore it's not as expensive as it would have been if we were to try to be in orbit around Europa. And if we were in orbit around Europa, we'd have to be, uh, the spacecraft would have to be designed with mega rad hard parts, which um, are expensive and uh, would complicate the mission and, and we have a lifetime in that case of only a few months. And with the Europa Clipper mission in orbit around Jupiter, making flybys of Europa, it's going to be about four years in the nominal mission in the Jupiter system. Nice. Let me ask about your role as the project scientist for such a groundbreaking spacecraft mission like Europa Clipper. I mean, I presume this job leans very heavily on your expertise as a planetary scientist, but it's also a leadership position, right? So if Clipper were the Enterprise, are you more like Mr. Spock or Captain Kirk or a blend of the two? Okay. So I used to think of myself as very Spock-like. Okay. <laughs> if you enjoyed the picture of me with with uh, Cabrera, you know there there exist pictures <laughs> that I won't share of me <laughs> in oh I don't know high school and even in college, you know dressed as Spock with with ears and phaser, um, but I've had to learn to be much more Kirk like in the original series analogy, though I think I look more to. Picard and today even to, to Pike as role models for how I might act 
when there are tough decisions to be made, because that's, that's what you have to learn how to do. It's, it's not like I set out to be a project scientist. My interests and, and the job kind of found me, and I've had to move away from the, the always logical Spock-like scenarios and be able to say, you know, here's what we're going to do. Listen to my Spock and listen to my McCoy <laughs> advisors or listen to my Diana Troy and make those hard decisions, but based on the recommendations of those around me. And really those are, as, as we're talking about, it makes me think these, those are really key aspects of Star Trek, right? For the comparison of the, probably the id and the ego in terms of uh, Kirk and his trying to make decisions and McCoy and Spock. And then that was expanded even more with next generation. And now you have seats besides, beside the captain and a more interactive group. And that fascinated me with season two of Discovery and Into Strange New Worlds, where I, I've just been enamored by the way Pike is able to rely upon, trust, get consensus from his group on the bridge, right? That, that there are even times where he doesn't give the order that someone else on the bridge says, you know, go do this. And he trusts in them completely. He could override them. So there are lessons here in running a good organization where your crew puts their trust in you as a leader and also where you as a leader put your trust in your crew. So I guess you're saying you're not neither Spock nor Kirk. You are Captain Pike. <laughs> <laughs> I think closest to Pike. So, you know, and this is all new, right? It's we're still in the first season and, and we had we had season uh, two of Discovery. But but when I look across the captains, right, a, a question I've heard before is who's your favorite captain? And now my answer is Pike. Wow. That's so cool. I'm sure if we could tell the uh, Strange New World showrunners and writers that um, they would they would love it. Um, in order to make a space mission fly, you also need to talk to engineers. And you know, those of us who have never been a part of a mission may not appreciate the kind of push and pull dynamic between scientists and engineers. In my mind, it kind of plays out like this, where scientists say, my goal is to measure X, Y, and Z about Europa. And the engineers say, well, you're 200 kilograms too heavy and $2 billion over budget. So <laughs> choose one of those things to measure. Um, could you tell us you know, a little bit about what it's like interfacing with the Scotties of the world on the Clipper team? <laughs> yeah, I've had to learn a whole new culture, right? I don't have an engineering background and I'm kind of dropped in with engineers, but I had good mentors in this regard as well. When I first came to JPL, I was able to work with Carla Clark, who ran the Europa Studies and we were well-matched, respected each other, and she taught me a lot about the engineering side. But there was still a lot I didn't know and a lot I had to learn on the fly. And some of it is, you know, you're sitting in a meeting and the engineers start filling in some uh, risk matrix or, or, or the like, and you realize, oh, that's their language. I wasn't trained in this. I wish I had been. There needs to be a, an engineering for scientists kind of kind of primer course. And I think there's more of that now than, than there was just a couple of decades ago um, when I was dropped into this. But one needs to respect that culture and learn from it and talk across the boundaries. So I, th I think the people who are most successful as uh, mission PIs, or in my case, uh, project scientists, are the ones who are at that engineering science boundary. So if people are looking for advice on, you know, how do I become a principal investigator for a mission, I'll tell them, learn the engineering and learn the science, because it's those people on the boundaries who can speak both languages and understand best how to communicate across those boundaries. But I, you know, I worked hard to learn as I go to talk to the engineers to understand their issues and, and they'll do the same to me and they'll try to understand the science and you respect each other at that boundary. And, and that helps you go really far. Yeah, best of luck crossing that divide. I think for a lot of people out there in the public, they may not appreciate how 
stark of a contrast there is between the language that scientists speak and engineers speak, because to them, it's all, you know, it's all STEM. It's all, you know, the, the nerdy people who like to do math or whatever, <laughs> but there really is, yeah, a cultural difference. Right. We as scientists get frustrated when the engineers say, well, okay, so you want a hundred meters per pixel images. Well, what if it's, you know, can it be 99? Well, well yeah. <laughs> That is a hundred, right? It's my first. Right? They're equivalent. No, no, no. If it's ninety-nine, we fail that requirement. Like, oh, okay, all right. Now I see the problem, right? But it, it's tough to get past there, and then there might be a push to say, oh, well, we can only do this well. Can we make that ninety? Like, well, ninety isn't a hundred, but ninety-nine was. So you know, it, it, <laughs> you end up having some of those discussions that are hard, where. Where, as as you were saying, the engineers want you to quantify the science, but sometimes the science isn't readily quantifiable. Some missions, some measurements are, but some aren't. You know, sometimes we're characterizing X, Y, and Z, but then we we have to, as scientists, say, okay, this is what the engineers need. So, okay, what does it mean to characterize? We have this many types of features. We want to see three of each. Okay, you know, 10 types, so we need 30, you know, and then we'll add 10% margin. So whatever, whatever it is, right? And you need to be able to find how to discuss these things, even coming from disparate backgrounds. So I consider myself in this job, a science diplomat, both between the engineers and the scientists, and also among the scientists, because conflicts arise among scientists. We want everyone to get along. We have a long mission. We're going to be working together for 15 years. And so, so some of that diplomacy is within the science team as well to try to make it something that we're going to have fun with and enjoy for 15 years, right? On, on the enterprise, most people really like each other. Okay. There's a, I guess I was watching a Voyager episode the other day where there was, you know, there were two characters who clearly didn't like each other, but then someone <laughs> stepped in and said, look, you know, we're on the same ship, get over that. Yeah. You have to get yeah. past that. Right. Right. So let's talk about characterizing Europa. Um, after listening to my miniseries on Europa, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with this moon of Jupiter to some extent and why it's so important to our search for life in the universe. But let's talk about some of these unknowns about Europa and how Clipper will fill in the gaps of understanding for us. So I think as we've mentioned, you're, you're a planetary geologist by training. Um, so let's start with Europa's outer ice shell, just narrowing down now into the wild tectonic features that we see there. What are some of the most intriguing mysteries about the surface of this alien world? The most common feature on Europa are these double ridges. These ridges that travel the surface in pairs, they can be tens to, to hundreds to maybe even a thousand kilometers long. Sometimes they occur in sets. It's not clear those are the same structures, but there are some that seem to occur in sets. The most common feature on Europa, and we don't know how they formed. We don't really understand it. There are a bunch of models, a bunch of possibilities. Uh, it probably has something to do with the tidal flexing of Europa as it orbits around Jupiter and the fact that there's a lot of rubbing and shearing and extension and contraction, but exactly how it works and the relationship to liquid water that maybe is probably below the surface isn't really clear. So we need to understand how these ridges form. What do they tell us about liquid water? Is there a connection if liquid water is involved in their formation, is there a pathway along ridges that might allow water vapor to escape? So that's a basic one. And, and the other major terrain type on Europa is chaos terrain, where there are blocks that have broken apart. It kind of looks like sea ice, but the ice is probably a lot thicker. So these aren't necessarily floating in water. They may be moving around atop a warm, soft ductile ice. And there's a lot of discussion debate in the science community as to what does chaos terrain say about the presence of liquid water below the surface? Is it directly indicating that there is or recently was uh, liquid water there? Oh, and I say recently because Europa has very few large craters. 
probably uh, on the order of 20-ish, right? In, in the half we've seen, there are about 10 large craters. So maybe there are 20-ish <laughs> over the whole surface. And we know that a 20-kilometer crater should form about every 4 million years. And that's because we, we can observe the population of impactors that would make a crater that size. So we know Europa's age is probably about 60 million years plus or minus a factor of three because we're not really sure of that that impact flux exactly so that means since the time dinosaurs roamed the earth which is recent in geologic times europa has been repaved somehow and so when we're talking about the surface of europa and the processes that operate there they're geologically very recent and so how will Clipper, what instruments will it bring? What measurements will it make that uh, will elucidate these mysteries of how these double ridges formed and what the chaos terrain is telling us about Europa? Well, one of the things we're proud of on Clipper is that the instruments work together, right? Like a Swiss Army knife, you can choose, let's use this one and this one and to understand how this place came to be. So in the case of chaos and ridges and understanding the Geology, well, images, of course, we don't, the, the Galileo spacecraft orbited Jupiter and made about a dozen flybys of Europa, um, not as close as we'll be getting. And Galileo had a busted in, high gain antenna. So it was broadcasting its data back at a, at a very low data rate of something like 40 bits per second. So we'd get a couple of images a day <laughs> back in the day. And um, so we only have 10 or 15% of Europa image at a resolution good enough to even identify these kinds of features. And, you know, you can count on your fingers and toes the number of very high resolution images. So we're going to be able to cover lots of the surface of Europa at 90% at that resolution, uh, at better than 100 meters per pixel. And we'll have spots up to a meter per pixel with wow. images, right? So I see the table I'm sitting at right now with, with those images. Um, we have an ice penetrating radar. So at long wavelengths, like meter scale wavelengths, ice is very transparent. And so we can shine radar at Europa and it'll bounce off any liquid water or any structural uh, or any, any discontinuities uh, in the ice and back to the spacecraft. And we can put together a picture of what Europa's subsurface looks like by bouncing radar, not off the surface, but, but through the ice where it'll reflect off, off liquid water uh, if it's down there. And so we're, we're going to understand whether there's liquid water associated with ridges and chaos and, and various other terrains on Europa. The compositional instruments also play into the geology and and lead us into understanding other aspects of Europa's evolution that we learn about through composition. So we have a, an infrared spectrometer that um, we can measure essentially the, the spectral fingerprints of, of light that's bounced off Europa to understand the composition. We have a gas mass spectrometer, neutral gas mass spectrometer to measure atmospheric components, but where do those atmospheric components come from, they come from the surface. So we'll be learning about the surface and the interior by measuring the gases. And we have a, a spectrometer that measures the composition of dust that's knocked off of Europa and dust that comes in from places like Io for comparison. Uh, so we'll be able to get the composition that way. Oh, another one I should mention with regard to geology is the thermal instrument. So like Cassini at Enceladus was able to measure hot spots associated with the plumes of Enceladus. Uh, we'll be able to measure very precisely the temperatures at Europa to look for hot spots, anomalies that might be there. That leads into the ultraviolet spectrometer, which can tell us about surface properties and gases and can search for plumes that might exist at Europa as we know that they do. At Enceladus, there are Hubble observations and other Earth-based observations of Europa, which suggest there might be plumes, but it's a really tough measurement to do from Earth 
And so we'll be able to test for that with Europa Clipper. And then can I go into the, 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 the other few, the fields and particles, and, the, and they'll tell us more about the interior of Europa too. So we have a magne magnetometer and a plasma instrument. And the way that we're pretty sure that there's an ocean at Europa today is from the magnetic signature. So the geology is fascinating and hints at an ocean or a past ocean, but the magnetometer tells us there's probably an ocean today because, well, the best analogy I can think of is if you're walking through a metal detector at the airport and you have keys in your pocket, you set off the metal detector. Well, the Galileo spacecraft observed the magnetic uh, signature around uh, near Europa and Europa kind of set off Galileo's uh, metal detector, if you like, not because it has keys in its pocket, but because there's probably a salty ocean below the surface. So when Europa moves through the magnetic field of Jupiter, it creates, there's created an induced magnetic field around it. And that's what the Galileo spacecraft detected, telling us there's probably a salty ocean in there. So we can redo that experiment but instead of just several flybys of Galileo that were good enough for that experiment, we can do it on 49 flybys. And with the plasma instrument, we'll be able to subtract out the effects of those ionized particles near Europa and, and tease out the magnetic signature, this induction signature to very high precision to um, tell us not just that there is an ocean, but how thick is it and how uh, salty is it which which leads into can it be a place that might be able to support life Amazing. without any of our instruments gravity gravity science we can track the spacecraft very precisely through its doppler signature the doppler signature as as we measure the signal uh, from the spacecraft and that will tell us about the interior layering of europa more precisely than today and is another way to confirm a liquid water ocean because if there is an ocean Europa will flex enough that we can detect the gravitational signature of that flexing by again flying by Europa dozens of times that's incredible it sounds like a full sensor sweep of Europa using so many different techniques you've got let me see if I can recount all of them just for my own understanding so you've got gravity you have thermal imaging, which is essentially looking at the heat, a magnetometer to look at the induced magnetic field. You've got various different uh, mass spectrometers and then also a UV spectrometer. Am I missing anything? That's a lot already. Uh, I think you, I think, did you get the thermal? There, so yeah. there are 10, 10 total. <laughs> 10 total. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Way, and the only way I can keep, make sure I don't forget is to go in wavelength order. <laughs> there, are five, <laughs> there are five remote sensing, and then there are four fields and particles. So UV, visible, infrared, near infrared, that is, and then mid infrared for the thermal, radar, which is radio waves, and then the mag plasma and the two, uh, the gas and the dust spectrometers, and then gravity. Fantastic. You know, I think that for most people um, who've heard of Europa, they're definitely interested in the big question, is there life in that ocean underneath that icy crust? Is Europa Clipper going to be able to answer that question for us? We're not a life search mission. So this mission's goal is to explore Europa to understand its habitability. And so what we understand about whether a world can be habitable at it to first order is does it have the ingredients necessary for life does it as we understand them does it have liquid water as a solvent does it have the right elements from which organic molecules can be built or does it for that matter have organic molecules and does it have the chemical energy necessary to support life and that's actually the hardest one is there a redox potential right is there is there the ability for reductants and oxidants to get together because that's what powers life that's what, what allows for metabolism and uh, chemosynthesis as opposed to photosynthesis the powering life from chemical energy so we can't go into the ocean to do that but from the composition measurements, we can get an idea 
and, and from the geological processes, what the nature of that ocean is like. We, we know there are, there's almost certainly reductance in Europa's ocean just from reaction of liquid water with the ocean floor, with the rock that produces hydrogen. If Europa's hot, that will produce even more reductance down there at the ocean floor. The oxidants are the harder part. And on the surface of Europa, all that blast from radiation that would kill um, uh, you or me if we were on the surface or kill any organisms that were on the surface, well, it rips apart ice and uh, hydrogen floats away from the H2O, but oxygen, oxidants are left behind on the surface. So oxygen trapped in the ice, peroxides. And so if the stuff at the surface, those oxidants can get into the liquid water through geological processes, then we know that there's a source for those oxidants that could potentially power life. So that would set us up for a future lander mission to Europa. That's what's probably needed really to dig up some of that reddish gunk on Europa's surface and search for life there. Yeah, that was going to be my uh, last science question for you is what comes next after this uh, mission uh, that will give us an unprecedented glimpse at the surface of Europa and high res and try to understand the processes beneath that surface that create what we see up there? Uh, is it a lander? Is it something else? Can you get into the subsurface ocean? And is there room for a crewed mission to Europa? You know, something that you would send Rene Picard on, maybe not in 2024, right, but 2034, right. 2044. What are, what, are, what are the prospects for uh, the future of Europa science? So I, I mentioned plumes a little bit. And, and if there really are plumes, then we might be able to get hints of the potential for life with the mass spectrometer on Europa Clipper, right? If we could fly close and through a plume, and we were lucky enough, we might be able to say, hey, these patterns of organics are not as random as we'd expect. Maybe they're, they're indicators that there could be biological processes. So that's not out of the question. And, and maybe if there are plumes, something that, that targets plumes specifically and does analyses that way could tell us something about, about uh, life at Europa. More likely one would have to go to the surface, dig below the radiation or sample from below the radiation processing depth and look for signs of organics that, that might indicate life. And then in the much more distant future, maybe it's to the point where we could send something down through the ice, but it depends on how thick the ice really is, right? It's not easy to get through maybe 20 kilometers, 16 miles of ice to that ocean. But I'd love, you know, I'd, I'd love to know that someday they'll, there may be a crewed mission to Europa. It wouldn't be easy given the radiation environment. Astronauts could potentially be in a protective uh, environment or, or under, uh, it doesn't take much ice to, to stop that radiation. So maybe the Rene Picard of the future will be able to go to Europa and search for life and hopefully find it there rather than Io. Yeah, I remember reading in a paper that, you know, maybe a couple tens of centimeters and you are protected. So maybe uh, training astronauts to build themselves igloos on Europa is the uh, <laughs> is the primary task. <laughs> or or use Callisto uh, as a as a staging post and maybe go off to Europa from there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Bob, thanks so much for joining us on Strange New Worlds. It's been a pleasure having you on. Um, just one last question for you, which is where can listeners follow you and follow your work on the internet? Yeah, uh, please go to europa.nasa.gov to see the website that describes our mission. Uh, it describes uh, the instruments in detail and the spacecraft, and it has some really nice bios and links to some of the members of the science team. It's, it's a great team and um, it's gonna be a great mission. Oh uh, yeah, I, sh I should mention it, right? I, I alluded a little bit to the fact that it's gonna be five and a half years cruise after October, 2024 to get to Europa with a flyby of Mars, then Earth, then we get out there. So, so please follow along the journey and our arrival at Jupiter will be in 2030 and our first Europa encounter in 2031.
Incredible. It's going to be a fun time and I can't wait to see what you all discover. So thanks again, Bob. This was a real treat and uh, I'll let you get back to making the Europa Clipper mission a reality. Go Clipper. Thank you. This was a lot of fun and a lot of fun to, to reflect on how Star Trek has really shaped my, my thinking through the years. The Europa mission turned out to be a bigger part of season two than I had anticipated from the trailers. And although by the end of the season I was a little disappointed that we didn't get to see more of it, I have to be so grateful that this icy ocean world is finally getting some love in Star Trek. The discoveries that our real-life spacecraft have made about Europa and other icy satellites, such as Saturn's moon Enceladus, over the past few decades has literally turned astrobiology inside out. And I love that Star Trek is beginning to reflect this science reality in its fictional annals of the future. Thank you again to Dr. Bob Papillardo, project scientist of NASA's Europa Clipper mission, for making the time to speak to us. Stealing an hour of his precious time felt like getting to spend the day with Mr. Spock or Captain Janeway, or maybe even Christopher Pike. And Bob was such a delight to talk to. Not only did we learn some great Europa science today, but we also got a glimpse at the team management side of running a spacecraft mission from one of the best in the business. I can't wait for Clipper to launch in 2024, our very own real-life spacecraft bound for Europa on a mission to explore that strange new world. You can follow Bob Papillardo on Twitter at rpapillardo, myself at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I, and this show at Science of Trek. Until next time. See you out there. reminded me, but I didn't see a way to get it in after the fact that uh, I also helped advise that episode of The Watchmen where Europa has a key role. <laughs> and you can, find me, you can find me in the credits as they quickly scroll by as like Europa advisor or something like that. Uh-huh. I hope Star Trek reaches out to you, honestly. You know, if they keep having Europa in these shows as they do, um, they should really talk to the the Europa Clipper guy. <laughs> it would be fun. I got to meet a couple of the folks who were working on the set of, I think it was Discovery, um, who came to one of our brunches pre-pandemic, but uh, didn't didn't quite get that connection. But maybe someday I'll get to wear some pointy ears on the set. That would be a, a dream come true. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, let's try to make it happen. Um, if you're listening, CBS, uh, Paramount, <laughs> both of us would like to be on Star Trek one day. <laughs> make, make it so. <laughs> <laughs>